Would you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6? And if you don't have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to grab one under the chairs in front of you. You can find Matthew 6 on page 787. We're in the middle of the sermon series on the Lord's Prayer. As Josh said, and as the calendar dictates, uh, the next two Sundays are the high point of the Christian season, Palm Sunday through Easter Sunday. So we're going to take a break for uh, Holy Week, Passion Week, uh, but right after uh, Easter Sunday, we'll get right back into the Lord's Prayer and pick up where we'll, left, uh, we'll leave off after this morning. Here's an uh, outline of the prayer to get us a sense of where we've been and where we are relative to the end. The prayer starts with an emphasis on praise. That's fully half of the prayer, three out of the six petitions. And then there's prayer for provision. Give us this day our daily bread, what we need for survival and thriving. There's a prayer for pardon, forgive us our debts, forgiveness of sins. And now we'll see today and in a few weeks a prayer for protection from temptation and even from evil itself. Let's read Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Listen carefully. These are God's words. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, just as Katie prayed in leading us earlier, we ask again that you would take uh, what is so familiar to many of us and make it fresh. Cause the gospel to pierce our hearts in a way that um, we've never experienced before. Cause your word to speak to our minds and open our hearts to understand at a depth that we have not experienced before. Do this, Lord, through your Spirit, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First, uh, tests, trials, or temptations. We're going to talk about all three of those terms. What does temptation look like in your life? Maybe you're home at night, nothing to do, you're minding your own business, but the thought of chocolate cake won't leave you alone. It's relentless. It pursues you. It's a seductive whisper in your ear, chocolate cake. And if you happen to have one on the counter in the kitchen, forget about it. (laughs) Just give up, pour yourself a glass of milk, rebuke the guilty feeling, and uh, indulge. And if cake ain't your thing, substitute whatever guilty pleasure happens to float your boat. Fried chicken, sodium-laden ramen, a pint of Haagen-Dazs, whatever it is, temptation. But temptation gets a lot more serious, doesn't it? It goes deeper. And so you're on the computer taking care of paying the family bills, and an explicit image is just a click away. You're driving home, passing by that liquor store, and a bottle of gin is just two minutes in and out, cash, no one will ever know, away from your hand. Those couple of examples focus on the senses, the physical, food, drink, sex, but temptation goes 
far more deep into who we are, doesn't it? This line in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, it begs the question, why would God tempt us to sin? And in order to understand that, we need to turn to another passage, not for, just for clarity, but for correction, because that thought, that question is a wrong question. It's wrong-headed. It's, it's coming at it from the wrong direction. Um, we're going to turn to James chapter 1. Verses are up here, but if you can uh, follow along, James is toward the end of the Bible. We're going to dip into some detail that uh, might feel like we're in the weeds, but it's really important to understand some of these terms and how they relate to each other, okay? James chapter 1, starting in verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And so when we talk about lead us not into temptation, that's the Greek word perasmos. Um, It's the same word here in James chapter 2 that's translated trials, same word, different English translations, okay, fitting the context. And then the word underneath uh, testing in James chapter 1 verse 3, the testing of your faith, that's a different Greek word. Dokimion, which has the sense of examining something to determine whether it's genuine or not. Think of a gemologist looking through that eyepiece at a diamond. Is it genuine? Is it rated what it's being sold as or um, uh, traded in as? But here's the thing with James chapter 1 and uh, chapter verse 2 into chapter 3. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. The way the apostle uses those two terms back to back from verse 2 into verse 3 gives us a sense that it's the same thought. And it strongly suggests at a minimum that these verses overlap in their meaning. Trials and testing. And then a few verses later, uh, verse 12 in James Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, same word again, have, because having stood the test, there's that pairing, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love Him. Same two words used in the same verse now, and it sure seems like James is using them in very similar, if not identical, ways. And then verse 13, when tempted... No one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Five times in those few verses, the same word translated tempted is underneath it in the original Greek language in which the New Testament was written. It's the same word as trial, perasmos. It's the same word as lead us not into temptation. Trial, temptations, testing. Not all the same word, but certainly overlapping in meaning, sometimes synonymous in meaning. All used to describe what's going on around and underneath sin when it gives birth in our hearts. Here's how we understand then, lead us not into temptation from the Lord's Prayer. God tests, 
God allows trials to come into our lives, but God does not tempt. God does not, um, God tests. What does He test? He tests the foundation of your life. What are you standing upon? He He tests the genuineness of your convictions. Do you really believe what you say you believe? He, he tests the, the integrity of your faith. What is it that you truly believe and stake your eternity on? But God never tests toward sin. Satan tests toward sin. Satan, the evil one, dangles uh, sin in front of you, hoping that you'll fall prey to it, hoping that you'll grab hold of it. But God the Father tests toward faith in order to strengthen you, in order to shape something of His Son's character in you. So this line of the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. It's more like this. Father, please don't lead us into situations that would bring about temptation. Please spare us from vulnerable situations that might result in our weakness giving in to sin, leading to sin. So Christians never pray for trials and tests. We're not masochists. We don't look for suffering and difficult situations. We don't pray for them, but in those circumstances, when they come, whether God actively bringing them or God um, allowing them to come upon us, in those trials In suffering circumstances, we pray, as Jesus is teaching us, for protection from temptation and for strength to overcome. Whether a test becomes temptation or not depends on the person's heart. Um, The Tour de France is uh, an annual bicycle race. It is an epic endurance test because it covers... 2,200 miles of roads throughout France, sometimes it dips into Spain, over 23 days for um, four to five hours on a bike with only two days off in those three-plus weeks. Some routes involve climbing up and over real mountains like the Alps, crazy stuff, epic endurance test. And so that has made the temptation to cheat irresistible for so many bikers over the years. It, 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 it reached a point where it was epidemic on the tour. High-tech solutions dreamed up and invented and schemed to trick blood and urine tests. So if you were a biker, what would you think about those drug tests? What would you think when the, the official randomly chooses you and hands you a cup before the race is just about to begin for the day? Well, it depends. If you're one of the clean riders, the very few clean riders, you look forward to peeing in a cup. It's vindication. Give me the cup. I'll give you my sample. It's going to prove that I compete fairly, honorably, with integrity. But if you're one on performing enhancing drugs, that same test reveals temptation, doesn't it? That same test is nerve-wracking because failing it will show you to be a fake, a pretender. Back to the Lord's Prayer. Is testing or temptation in view? Well, it depends on the desires of your heart. 
as James chapter 1 helps us understand how, um, how it, the evil desire in our hearts leads to this growth process, a bad growth process that goes through sin and results in death. It depends on your heart. Jesus is not teaching us here to pray, to ask, hope that God the Father doesn't tempt us. God, don't, don't dangle sin in front of me. He doesn't do that, James tells us. But Jesus is teaching us to pray along these lines instead. God, when the tests come, let my faith in you hold strong. Help me to preserve my integrity even when it's costly. Don't let the test lead me to sin. That leads us secondly to needing to notice life's tests, to understand when they're coming at us. When I started grad school, I quickly realized that my classmates and I were asking our professors the same questions we asked our teachers in high school and in college at the beginning of every course. When are the tests? What kinds of tests are they? You always hope multiple choice is the answer, right? Um, are you going to tell us what are, uh, what's on the test? Are they cumulative? In other words, are you going to ask us everything from the beginning of the semester or just the new stuff that we've learned since the last test? Those are the questions that we tend to ask about tests at every level. But outside of the classroom, the reality is different. We don't just fail some tests in life. We fail to notice the many situations in life that are actually tests. You lose your job, you start praying. You ask others to pray, and the focus is almost entirely, God, please open doors. Please provide. Please connect me to the right person. Please give me favor with this interviewer. But maybe God is using that tough situation as a test to reveal the default position of your heart. Your identity and your security come from your career. And God wants you to pray and ask others to pray, Lord, would you use this difficult time to reveal the idols of my heart? Show me what it really means to depend on you, Lord. That could be a sermon series in and of itself. You get sick. Of course, you pray for healing. If you're in a prayer network, if you have a growth group, if you have um, uh, a a Christian friend, you're going to ask them to pray the same But maybe God says, stop, rest, take a deep breath. You need to learn that you are not defined by what you can accomplish accomplish this day, by running around on your normal schedule. You need to learn that you are not defined by how busy you maintain your schedule. Be still and know that I am God. And if you push through and you fail to realize that, yes, God can even use the flu or bronchitis as a test, as a spiritual barometer in your life, if you push on, maybe you're adding pride to failing the tests, failing to see that there could be any spiritual benefit to your sick time because I'm tough. I don't let this stuff stop me. I plow through, and everyone who sees me says, my goodness, you are, just, you are such a persevering person. Nothing stops you. Yeah, that's me. 
and you've added pride to your failure of a test. You have a horrible boss, and your instinct is just to get out, look for a way out. You update your resume. You get back on LinkedIn. You start connecting with people you met at conferences. But maybe God, again, is using that tough circumstance to reveal something about your heart. You want an easy path. You love people unconditionally. You love them because of what they do for you when the gospel calls you to love them in spite of their words against you, their attitude, their competitive spirit. God calls you to love your enemies. God calls you to understand what it means to humble yourself. Maybe he says, you know what? Prideful dude like yourself, you need some criticism to cut you down, (laughs) even if it comes from a sinful source. You need to learn to, to thrive in humility, to work hard, not because of reward or recognition, but because it pleases God. The trial is a test, and if your heart's not right, it becomes temptation to grow bitter, resentful, to return evil for evil. In that situation, so often all we're looking for is a shortcut, but God wants to shape our hearts so that they look more like the heart of the perfect Son, Jesus. If you don't even know there's a test, you have very little chance of handling it well, right? Works in academics, it works in, it applies in the rest of life. Over and over, we miss opportunities to learn the answers to questions or to go deeper in understanding the answers to questions like, where does my hope really come from? What am I truly trusting in, in terms of foundation? What is true treasure that is really worth pursuing? All too often we see tests and trials as intrusions, as inconvenient bumps in the road, preventing us from accomplishing what we want to accomplish. Maybe we're even surprised sometimes that God would allow this to happen to children like us. You call us my, your son and daughter. Why would you do this? Why would you allow this? Why won't you protect me? But listen to the Apostle Peter. He says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. I'm not sure if we held up our little inconveniences, the little bumps in the road, up to 1 Peter 4.12, that we would legitimately be able to call them fiery ordeals. You know, the apostles were getting thrown in jail, beaten, threatened with executions. Those are fiery ordeals. And even then... Peter's saying, don't be surprised when the authorities show up and threaten to cut off your head. Those have come on you to test you. But rejoice to the extent that you are called to participate in the sufferings of Christ because if your King and Savior went that route, why do you think a follower of His would be exempt? Quick examples of tests for a few levels of stage, uh, life stage, okay? Kids, even if you were up here, little, little, little ones, our, our young ones, as, as young as pre-K, let's say you're out playing 
in the neighborhood. And suddenly you look down and there's a wallet. You pick it up, it is overflowing with $20 bills and no one is around. What do you do? Do you pull out all the uh, money, drop the wallet and run? Do you take out just a couple because nobody will notice and then you put it in your pocket and then you find an adult or a, a police officer and you say, I found this and the $40 are for your trouble. You don't tell anybody. Or do you do the right thing? That's a test of integrity. Someone once said, character is who you are when no one's looking. Kids, what kind of character do you have if that happened to you? Teens, there's a big exam coming up in a class that has a reputation, and you've been in the class long enough to understand why it has a reputation. This is tough. But a friend comes to you and says, I have a copy of, a, of an old exam that came from an upperclassman. And you know there can't be that many questions that uh, a, a teacher p- could put on an exam. Chances are that old exam has at least half of the questions that you're going to get on this new exam. What do you do? Do you take a quick glance and say, oh, I'm going to study on my own, but I, what am I going to study? What am I going to focus on? Or in the old days, we had to find a dime in a copy machine. Or do you pull out your phone and you just take a picture of it? And then you have them all. And when the answer or the questions come up, no problem. Do you say no? Do you courageously tell your friend that they need to get rid of that? They shouldn't be looking at it either. And do you realize that your decision might cost you, especially if everyone else is taking a peek at it and you're the only one doing it all on your own? Adults, we could talk about so many different kinds of tests that uh, we'd spend all day, but a few just to run through. Do Do you join in the gossip at work or do you risk being shunned, gossiped about because you're holier than thou. You're too good for us. Do you deduct what you shouldn't on your tax return? It is April. Do you fold personal expenses into the business pile? Do you report more hours than you actually worked? Do you spend more than the reasonable amount of time uh, on your employer's bill doing personal stuff than you really should? Sometimes you got to call the doctor, no problem. Sometimes you got to take the kid's phone call, no problem. But more than is reasonable... Do you say that your kid is younger than he or she is to get the cheaper rate at the restaurant or at Disney or to get a competitive advantage in the sports league? Do you let your boss pull you into a, a white lie or, or worse, a cover-up instead of doing the tough but right thing and refusing to take part? It might cost you advancement. You know... Um, Enron, WorldCom MCI, Lehman Brothers, Bernie Madoff, just to name four prominent examples in the last uh, few decades. These were massive financial train wrecks that took place over a number of years and involved many executive-level workers turning a blind eye to wrongs they knew were being carried out. They didn't suddenly wake up one day and say, gee, I'm going to hide $15 billion. 
They didn't wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm going to bilk everyone out of their life savings. No, what happened, no doubt, was little by little over the years, they failed lots of little tests that led them to failing the few bigger tests, and the implications grow exponentially. How do you pass the test, lastly, when it comes, if you even notice it? We need to remember where we are in the Lord's Prayer to get a little perspective. The previous line that we looked at last Sunday, forgive us our debts, that leads us into, lead us not into temptation. Forgiveness of sins realigns our hearts with the heart of our perfect heavenly Father. And if we rewind even farther, to go back to the very first week, our Father who art in heaven, we ask that question, how are we given the privilege to address the creator of this universe, the King Himself, with such intimate family language? And the answer is, Jesus has given us access through His blood shed on the cross. He passed the ultimate test And through faith in Him, we benefit from His perfect life and perfect death in our place. Jesus' life was characterized by trial and suffering. In fact, it was even characterized by temptation. Before He began His public ministry, He was baptized and then immediately led into the wilderness to be tempted by no less than Satan himself. He survived unscathed. He committed no sin, thought, word, or deed. And the rest of his life was characterized by trials, by enemies, by opposition, by suffering, physical, emotional, spiritual. It was not sort of the side thing that, gee, you know, Jesus happened to just have a rough life. No, suffering was central to his calling. It was central to his mission, why he had come. The author of Hebrews even writes this uh, about Jesus. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through Him everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what He suffered. Speaking about Jesus, made perfect somehow. Not that He was lacking in any divinity, not that He had committed sin and needed to be purified and forgiven, but He fulfilled His calling through suffering. And then a few verses later, because He Himself, speaking of Jesus still, because He Himself suffered when He was tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. He knows what you're going through. He's been there, yet without sin. Way back in Genesis chapter 22, first book of the Bible, God tested Abraham. He asked him to sacrifice his son, the son of the promise. From a salvation standpoint, the Scripture calls him your one and only son. He had Ishmael, but Ishmael was the shortcut. Isaac was the promised one. Bring him to Mount Moriah and and sacrifice them. Abraham passed that test. God was asking him, am I really first in your life? Show me. And Abraham was about to. He had every intention to, almost tragically, but God stopped him. An angel stopped the, the arm holding the knife before it could slay Isaac, his son. Why? Why did God stop him? 
Because God the Father Himself would do what He wouldn't allow Abraham to do. God the Father would carry out the sacrifice of His one and only Son, and He did not call Abraham to do that because He would do it Himself. Jesus gave this prayer to His disciples, and He would later pray, pray it on the last night of His life, a version at least, similar intent at least. Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane after the Last Supper, Father, is there any other way? Would you take this cup of your wrath, of your justice, away from me? We can hear that prayer overlapping with the words he taught his disciples here. Father, lead me away from testing trial temptation and deliver me from evil. But starting that night and continuing through that next afternoon, ending on the cross, Jesus would be led to ultimate temptation. And Jesus would be given over to, not delivered from, pure evil. When He prayed that prayer to the Father, the same prayer He had already taught His disciples, the answer from the Father was no. So that the answer from the Father to you and I can be yes. Last word from 1 Corinthians 10. Josh used this as one of the reflection quotes. No temptation has seized you except... Uh, this, that's, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. How is this possible? How, how do we take this verse and apply it to our lives? It's possible because Jesus was given no way out. It's possible because Jesus endured... Hell itself. Jesus passed the test, and He was not delivered from temptation, and He was not delivered from evil. He was given over to it, and if you place your faith in Him, His victory for you is the only thing that can give you strength to endure the little trials, tests, and temptations of life. Let's pray to Him. Lord Jesus, we worship you. We are free because you let sin imprison you, enslave you, at least for a time, for three days. We are forgiven because you, though you were sinless, were judged in our place. We, through faith in you, will live because you endured death in hell itself. We worship you this day.